Welcome to Scary Savannah and Beyond. This will be episode number 39. Wow. One year from 40. Yeah. It's like the last year before you're really old. So I'm in advanced age. <laughs> so <then>. am I. <laughs> Sounds like a real Well, you winner. know, they say that 40 is the new 30 and 50 is the new 40. So like people in their 40s are younger than ever. And Who said that? Lots of people. I don't know. There's some really good looking 60 year olds out there now. (laughs) I know some. Yeah. Well, I I would agree with you. There are. I don't think I'll be one of those, but (laughs) we can always hope. You will. So you can find us online if you go to www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com and you can find us on all social media platforms at the username at Scary Savannah. I would like to remind everybody that this is actually a video podcast and we, thanks to our subscribers, now have our own channel name. Yay. So if you go to youtube.com forward slash scary Savannah, then you will be able to go right to our YouTube channel where all of our episodes, except for the very earliest ones, have videos associated and you could subscribe and like. And Who was the 100th subscriber? I don't know offhand. Are you going to look it up? Let us know next week. I can let. Everybody know next week who fell into that category. Hopefully it wasn't myself. I think it might have been because you said that you hadn't subscribed. You realized you weren't a subscriber. I forgot to subscribe to my own channel. I don't even have an account on YouTube, so I don't think I'm subscribed either, but I'm going to work on that. Well, whoever was the closest to 100 will be the one that counts. So we'll find out. We'll let you know on the next episode. And... I would also like to ask you to help support the podcast by buying my lovely co-host a coffee beverage. And you can do so by going to our website and looking for the little yellow icon on the bottom left hand corner of the screen and click on that and donate to her all the coffees. We appreciate everyone who has done that already. Thank you so much. And please continue to do so so that she is not lacking in caffeinated beverages. It's important. It is very important. Script writing is exhaustive work, actually. It takes many, many hours. It does. So, Crystal, how have you been this week? I've been excellent. We went to Savannah yesterday, which we'll talk about later. And then we we had a really long day. We did. And we tried to just go get something to eat last night, but that spiraled into... Several different activities. Spiraled into going to several bars. (laughs) Yeah, we made the rounds last night. We We haven't done that in a long time. We were trying to go get something to eat at one of our favorite bars, and all they had were hot dogs. And uh, didn't really want a (laughs) hot dog. So we walked across the street to try to go to another bar where we like to eat. And halfway across, we come across another bar. And a musician I know was outside, and they sucked me in. So I played at open mic night there before moving on to the third and final bar of the night. Where we, where we did got get to pizza. eat at around midnight. It was <laughs> probably after midnight yeah. by the time we ate. We were the very last order of the kitchen cook. They were, people were mad. They were coming in like, oh, they got pizza. Like, no, they don't. Like, we, got pizza. <laughs> we got pizza. You don't get no pizza. <laughs> and uh, we had an interesting uh, encounter. There was a guy out there for some reason with a bonsai tree in a hat. And he was carrying it around to the various bars. It just makes sense on Tommy, though. Yeah, anywhere else it would be weird, but here it was just the norm. Every bar we went to, there he was. Yeah, he ended up at the last bar we were at, and he was actually dancing with his tree Which at that point. It was in a cowboy hat. Yeah. But the weird thing was, is he had on a hat. Yeah. So he was just carrying around this other hat that had a bonsai tree in it. Yeah. And for some reason, it wasn't even weird. 
Yeah. So if you come to Tybee, you'll see all kinds of weird and unusual yeah, things. Yeah, we just saw it and went, meh, makes sense. Makes sense. This week, we're going to be talking about the most diabolical crime that ever occurred under the Spanish moss. That's what they've named it. That you've heard of. Yeah, well, this is what they say. The year was 1909 and the world looked a lot different than it does today. So let's take a look at how the early 1900s were before this crime happened and during it. Sounds interesting. Yeah, because when you think back 100 years, you really know what life was like. I don't think I usually know. So this was only six years after the Wright brothers had made their first successful attempt at flying in 1903. Okay. So aviation is new. And one of the first cars that were affordable was the 1908 Model T, and it had just been made readily available by the Ford Motor Company. So this is the time when it was transitioning to automobiles from animal-drawn carriages. Offered in any color that you like, as long as it's black. (laughs) And uh, from 1909 to 1911, Adolf Hitler was a young 18-year-old man living in Vienna. So this is before World War II. On the 12th of February, the NAACP is founded. So this is the advancement for colored people. So things are changing rapidly. March 4th, William Howard Taft is sworn in as the 27th president of the United States, replacing Theodore Roosevelt. Clyde Barrow is born March 24th, 1909. Bonnie and Clyde, infamous duo. I'm familiar. In June 9th through August 7th, Alice Hewler Ramsey was a 22-year-old housewife and mother from Hackensack, New Jersey, and she became the first woman to drive across the United States. I'm sure it was in record time, too. (laughs) It took 59 days. She drove a Maxwell automobile 3,800 miles from Manhattan, New York, to San Francisco, California, with three non-driving female companions. Why is that even a statistic? Because women didn't drive very often. Like men were usually the ones to drive and cars were new. So it was like fascinating that a woman drove across the United States. Female non-driving participants in these events. (laughs) Well, I guess she meant she did it without a man. There was so much woman power, they brought three extras. Yeah, because there was no man to change the tire. What are you going to do? Do it yourself. Well, apparently you have three of the women that can just pick up the carriage of the car and (laughs) run with it. (laughs) On June 14th, Burl Ives was born, you know, famous singer. It says folk singer, and maybe he was, but there's literally only one song you know him for. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's a Christmas song. A Christmas song. (laughs) Not the Christmas song. Yeah. You'll be interested in this one. Have a holly jolly Christmas. From Rudolph, or was he was on Rudolph, wasn't he? Wasn't he the snowman, the voice of the snowman? The scary snowman. Yeah, I think he was. This is one you'll be interested in. On August 10th, 1909, Leo Fender was born. He was a guitar innovator and manufacturer. He was. He actually designed some of the earliest electric guitars, and they're played by thousands and thousands of guitars today. I myself own a couple. Yeah, you A fun and interesting fact is Leo Fender did not himself know how to play guitar. Really? How do you make one and not understand how to play it? Because he understands the physics of it, but he just did not have the Like those people that make violins, but they don't know how to play. Yeah, like like Bob Stradivarius. Yeah, Stradivarius. (laughs) I just assumed his first name was Bob and he didn't know how to play them. It just makes sense in my world. On August 19th, 1909, the first automobile race took place at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. On the 24th of August, workers start pouring concrete for the Panama Canal. I didn't realize it was that new, honestly. Yeah. I would have thought it was well, back it's over a hundred years ago. I guess so. I guess it just don't seem like it doesn't. Boats. On October 16th, William Taft, who I told you is now the president, was meeting with Porfirio Diaz, and he was the president of Mexico, and they were almost assassinated. 
Wow, that's a nice distinction to have. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, there's been several, but yeah, he avoided it. The 1909 World Series featured the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Detroit Tigers. It took place October 8th through 16th. Pittsburgh won the pennant, and they had the player Honus Wagner, who you may have heard of I had one of his, my dad told me about that. He had one of his baseball cards. He said he'd stick it in the spokes of his bicycle. Well, if he had saved it, it could have been worth a fortune. Those are very rare. You don't got any of them Honus Wagner cards, you know, just laying around the house. If anyone out there has one, you might want to look it up on eBay or some such. My dad did not have a Honus Wagner (laughs) baseball card, but I'm sure he had plenty of Mickey Mantle. He had plenty of Mickey Mantle cards that he stuck in the spokes of his bike. Yeah, and playing for the Detroit Tigers that year was Ty Cobb. You know who he is. Yeah, I've Definitely. seen a movie. Yeah, he's isn't, on, isn't he Tommy Lee Jones? Yeah, in real life? yeah, yeah. In real life, he's Tommy Lee Jones. On December 10th, Selma Lagerlof becomes the first female writer to win the Nobel Prize in literature. So women are advancing. And they were Society all driving advancing. in the same car together across <laughs> the country to go pick up the prize. And they were. On November 18th, Johnny Mercer was born. Johnny Mercer? Yeah, that's interesting. That is interesting to Savannah folk. Mm-hmm. Famous songwriter. Wrote Savannah many of the songs you recognize from the Bugs Bunny cartoons. He would. In 1909, also, the U.S. penny is changed to feature Abraham Lincoln. That's interesting. I don't I know what it was before. It was always Abraham Lincoln. Mm-mm. And so, although electricity has been developed by this time, it didn't become mainstream until the 1930s. So, most homes in the U.S. aren't equipped with it yet. They're still working off witchcraft at this point. Yeah. So, a little about Savannah in the early 1900s. The population was in the 50,000 range. And in 1901, the city boundaries expanded. In 1902, the Benedictine College is founded. That's still a pretty popular college here. I don't know where it is, but I see the stickers all the time. Yeah. It's a uh, Catholic Military college, I believe. Okay. The Savannah Union Station was completed. In 1904, the city exchange was demolished. In 1906, the Savannah City Hall was built. I did not realize it was all. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that old. I didn't either. In 1908, Savannah, Augusta, and Northern Railway are in operation. And in 1909, that's when, in December, we have the Savannah Axe Murders, which is our story for the night. That sounds really ominous. Just wait. On December 10th, 1909, a man was walking down the street past a home located at 401 West Perry Street in Elbert Square. And we had actually never heard of Elbert Square. And we found out that it's mostly been removed due to urbanization. And all that's left now is a small patch of grass and a couple benches. We visited actually yesterday and we took some pictures. It was one of the most illustrious squares that took me five seconds to walk through I've ever been in. Yeah, we would have completely missed it had we not, it's not read even this square. beforehand. It's more of a rectangle. It is actually like a rectangle. Yeah, this is our finest rectangle right beside the Civic Center. It was. This wooden house was run down and was located on the outskirts of the historic district in what was considered at the time to be a seedier part of town known as Frogtown. Frogtown? Mm-hmm. It's trying to sound like a video game. I don't know why they called it that, but... That's what they called it. The man heard what he thought to be a woman moaning, so he approached the home with its dirty windows and room for rent sign hanging in the door. The door was partially open, and when he tried to open it further, he found it was blocked by something. It was a woman laying in the hallway, bloody, with her throat slit. It's already going downhill. Yeah, and this is during the daytime. He ran to a nearby drugstore to call police. When police arrived, they found the badly beaten body of Maggie Hunter, age 34, laying in the front door. And as they examined the rest of the house, they found even more horror. Oh, no. They found the lifeless bodies of 70-year-old, and they some sources said 76, some say 78. 
and some say 70. So she was in her 70s. Approximately. Yeah. Her name was Eliza Gribble, and they also found the body of her 36-year-old daughter, Carrie Olander. Their murder weapon was a bloody axe found at the scene. However, this was not the usual kind that most households had at the time, like for chopping wood and such. The murder of Lizzie Borden's parents in 1892 was carried out with a similar weapon. The axe was like a broken-handled hatchet-type Thing. I just always picture axes when you talk about stuff like that as some big, long-handled Yeah, this axe. is a short-handled hatchet. I also read that police found a metal pipe at the scene. It's really hard to determine the actual weapon since this is before forensics. According to the Evening Press, on December 10th, 1909, Gribble was stretched out on her back with her feet towards the door. Her face was as calm as if she were asleep. But the dark mass of clotted blood in her gray hair at the top and back of her head told the story only too well. She had evidently been reading when she was struck down by the murderer, as her glasses and paper were placed at the foot of the bed by which she was found. Eliza Gribble had been born in Cornwall, England, and had moved to Savannah before the Civil War with her late husband, R. Gribble. Eliza had recently rented the home at 401 West Perry Street with the intention of renting out some of the other rooms. Her daughter, Carrie Olander, who was partially deaf, had come to live with her recently after separating from her husband, Andrew J. Olander. He was still living in Memphis, Tennessee, so he was not a suspect. Okay. The third woman found by the door, Maggie Hunter, was actually still alive and was rushed to a nearby hospital, Savannah Hospital, aptly named. That's right on the nose. <laughs> Carrie Olander, who they found slumped in the hallway, had also been sexually assaulted before her murder. So this is very shocking to the residents of Savannah. This will be shocking today. Yeah, for sure. But 1909, this is crazy. This stuff didn't happen. Who would be so brazen as to commit such a horrible crime against three women in broad daylight? Well, I hope you're going to tell me. Since the crime occurred around 2 p.m., news went out in the Savannah Evening Paper. It quickly became nationwide news. This caused a frenzy as word of the crime spread through town. A mob soon formed, and because racial tensions were still high in the early 1900s, they rounded up 150 African-American men for questioning. Riots broke out and fences were torn down and doors knocked down as they sought answers. The Los Angeles Herald reported on December 11, 1909, 150 Negroes are prisoners in the police station awaiting examination. So this is like they just decided that it was... This already like, sounds extremely racist. It was, obviously. But in 1900 in the Deep South? Yeah. Not very surprising. Yeah. From the Evening Press, December 10th, 1909, quote, The crime is supposed to have been committed by a Negro who had been working in the area the past few days. The Negro was formerly employed as a cook at a restaurant here. He was 26 or 27 years old, about 5 feet 8 inches high, and when he went to work this morning, he had on a gray sweater trimmed in red. I just wonder why it's important for them to call out the race of the supposed unfortunately that's how they talked back then i've looked at so many newspaper articles and it's it's all rampant i doubt if they thought it was say a white guy they'd be like and this white male you know went and did this it'd just be like bob frankens he did it yeah unfortunately the whole country was riddled with racism other headlines around the country read two dead and one dying in home victims of assassins so this thing is just going... It's blowing out of yeah, proportion, it sounds like. Also, detectives believe Negroes did murder. Women are killed by a Negro with axe. Neighbors saw Negro with axe. And must arrest Negro to solve mystery. So they were really... And what in the world made them just assume that that was what 
the cause was. Well, because of the location, it was near like railroad tracks and drug addicts hang out there and homeless people. And they just decided to pin it on uh, an African-American man, or they tried to anyway. So it's pretty clear they were convinced that an African-American man is responsible for the crime, even though they have no proof at this time. One white man was attacked by a mob because he had a scratch on his face, but police never considered him a suspect. Surprise, surprise. The Savannah Morning News reported that House of Mystery holds few clues. A search was made by Lamplight in the belief it might uncover previously missed clues, and indeed, they found burn cloth and some bloodstains. So... That's just like, how can you see better in lamplight than in daylight? I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> they had some interesting police tactics. From the Evening Press, December 12th, 1909, the article read, How two women could have been killed with an axe and a third left in dying condition without a scream or a sound of struggle being heard on the outside seems inconceivable. The house was just across the street from Citizens and Southern Bank's towering branch buildings, Probably where the Civic Center sits now is where I think the banks were. That would make sense. I don't know. Well, it says across the street, so that's where the Civic Center is. That was the only thing across the street. The Central of Georgia offices that had over 175 employees also stood nearby. And two o'clock is when people would be going out for lunch and such and walking around. So it's really hard to see how there were no people that heard this. The mayor brought in bloodhounds and offered a $1,000 reward for the capture of the perpetrator. Mm, I wonder if that had the opposite effect of what they hoped for. It did in one instance. The police investigation was not at all what we're used to today. We'll get into some of their more unconventional tactics in a bit. Over 40 police officers walked through the crime scene, as did reporters, attorneys, and curious onlookers. No crime scene tape or CSI specialist. Everybody just stumbling through. Oh, here's a memento. I'll take this bloody axe. Don't think they let them take any murder weapons, but who knows? Then city attorney Robert J. Travis got involved as well. He found a cane at the crime scene that was given to Maggie Hunter's husband, J.C., by his father-in-law. So how do you think that got there? I'm sure it was completely unrelated to the crime. Hidden in the fireplace of the Gribble home, were ashes from burned fabric and a bloody piece of wood. So we got more possible weapons. Sounds like it. Sounds like evidence galore. <laughs> the police believe that the murderer had killed each woman one at a time or else had an accomplice. So they really have no idea what's going on here. Could have been 12 people. Could have been assassins. Could have been. Funerals for Gribble and Olander took place December 11th, the day after the murders. They were buried at Laurel Grove Cemetery, but the bodies were exhumed a few days later for postmortems. We took a trip to Laurel Grove Cemetery yesterday looking for their graves. And even though we found them in the directory, we couldn't find the grave sites unless they don't have headstones. I contacted somebody who we know and who is a local historian, Mm -hmm. and he could not confirm this was the case, but he said it was likely that some of the markers had been removed for one reason or another. So. There are multiple unmarked graves in Laurel Grove Cemetery. We did take pictures of where they should be. So we there did is find a the location. plot where graves probably are. Yeah, because it's un- like there's grass and nothing there. So yeah. they're probably buried there. Meanwhile, Maggie Hunter was in critical condition in the hospital and was in a delirious state due to the wounds as well as their attempts to save her life. They actually opened veins and infused her body with a saltwater solution as well as sedating her with opiates. 
Why would they put saltwater solution? I don't know. Is this like old doctrine where yeah, they stick this leeches is 1909. on them and stuff? They don't know what they know now. Quick, put the ocean in our boys. That's going to help. At one point in her delirium, Hunter said, there he comes from the back room. Oh, for God's sake, take him off. Don't let him hurt me. Maggie Hunter had moved into the Gribble house only the day before the murders. What an unfortunate I know. timing. She had just left her husband of five years, J.C. Hunter. Who's Kane. Had been found. Right. Who was 30 years her senior. He often referred to her as his daughter and she called him the old man. Not creepy at all. No. Maggie had decided to try to make it on her own as a seamstress. Her husband, JC, had purchased a sewing machine and brought it to her the day before the crime. Maybe he accidentally left his cane there the day before. I don't know. Or was it a murder weapon? I guess it could have been. Circumstantial. If they'd have kept it, they probably could have used modern forensics to check. Family and friends of Maggie Hunter told police that she had breakfast with her sister, Mrs. Hewlett, who lived at 416 West Harris Street. She later stopped by three houses trying to sell some remnants of cloth to get some money so that she could buy some coal to light a fire so she could work. Another encounter Maggie Hunter had just prior to her death was with a man named John Flatman. He was an insurance salesman. And he had stopped by her sister's house to collect the premiums for her husband, J.C.'s life insurance. And he needed 60 cents. And she told him that she wanted to tell him something. She walked to the edge of the sidewalk and told him that the old man was going to give her a sewing machine to do some sewing with. And then he told her that he needed the 60 cents for the insurance. And she says that she would try, but she did not think that she would live that long. He needed it by Saturday, which was the next day. And this is like she's having a premonition. She said that I would be surprised by five o'clock to see the bloody work that would be done. That seems odd and ominous as well. Yeah. So he asked her if she was going to kill herself. And to this, she said that I would be surprised and I would see for myself this afternoon. Okay. If you're thinking something's going to happen, why are you hanging around? Yeah, I don't understand. Mr. Flatman said Miss Hunter was sober when she made the statement though she appeared to be a little nervous. So the police officers took this in, but they didn't really know what to do with it. So it's like a premonition, but I yeah. don't know. Let's go arrest some people. Yeah. So while she's in the hospital, she was visited by the Reverend John S. Wilder, who was the pastor of the Southside Baptist Church. He was known throughout the community as Brother John for his good works. Wilder went to Hunter's bedside to talk with her. And from the Evening Press, December 13th, 1909, this is a quote from him. I asked her if she recognized me. She looked at me carefully and said yes and called my name. I spoke to her about her soul and prayed with her. I asked her who it was that had assaulted her. She replied it was a white man and called a name. End quote. But he doesn't say the name. So she said that before or after they went and arrested all these people? Before. Well, they had already arrested a bunch of people but had no real cause to hold them yet. So we're just going to fill the jail up with every potential suspect. Right. Sadly, Maggie succumbed to her injuries and died three days after she was taken to the hospital. Some sources claim that Reverend John Wilder didn't reveal the name given to him by Maggie, but others say that she told him the attacker was, in fact, her estranged husband, J.C. Hunter. That would have been my first guess. Whatever the case, the police picked up J.C. Hunter for questioning. They also arrested other men. One of those men was Willie Walls. He came under suspicion after admitting to the police that he had tried to see Maggie Hunter on the day of the attacks and murders occurred. Walls had also paid for Maggie's stay in the Gribble house for a month in full as she was estranged from her husband. Walls was brought in for questioning and was held but released on his own bond. 
as the case against him was extremely weak and he never went to trial. Okay. Bingham Bryan was put into custody under the alleged motive of robbery on January 25th, 1910. It was believed that Gribble had an old trunk filled with wheels, stocks, and other valuable items. At the time of the murders, Bryan was the yard man for the property, and it was believed he knew the contents of the trunk. He was held, but never put on trial for the murders, as there was no evidence against him. Pesky evidence. I know. John Coker, who was eventually put on trial for the murders, but was not convicted due to lack of evidence because of an unreliable witness, he was arrested based on a neighbor saying that she saw him do it, but it turned out she was a cocaine addict and she was trying to collect the reward money. That does not seem in the least bit unreliable testimony by an eyewitness. Yeah. $1,000 was a lot of money Look, in 1909. I'll tell you what, the cocaine don't pay for itself. It does not. And if this guy did or didn't kill this woman, <laughs> that's irrelevant yeah, to the fact that I I'm bringing the you the information. So now let's talk about the main suspect, J.C. Hunter. My money's on him. Police learned that his real name was David L. Taylor. He was a Confederate veteran who had served in the 63rd Regiment Georgia Volunteer Infantry and had been wounded in the Battle of Atlanta. He was also a convict. Uh, he had been sent to prison twice, once as a horse thief and once for bigamy. Well, we already know what they did to horse thieves. I know, that then. was a big deal. We talked about that in the Old West episode. He lived nearby on the corner of Montgomery and Congress Street. And police found a package of clothing that he had worn that was stained with what seemed to be blood. The clothing was turned over to the city bacteriologist who confirmed the stains were blood. I guess this is the predecessor of a forensic scientist. Sounds like a lot of evidence is stacking up against this guy. Yeah. There was also a witness that claimed that he had threatened to kill his wife before. His occupation was wallpapering and painting houses. Yes. And he had previously wallpapered the inside of the Gribble home, so he was familiar with the inside layout. Yet another thing to put on the stack of potential reasons of why he could have done it. And remember, his cane was found there by the attorney. It was engraved with, quote, from Sis with the letter W inscribed below the handle. Maggie Hunter's brother said that the cane had belonged to their father, Mr. Wise, who had given the cane to J.C. Hunter. So that could tie him to the crime, but still, he could have left that there the day before. I suppose I don't it's believe possible. that that's it has to real be proven evidence. beyond a reasonable yeah. doubt. Even back then, I would assume. So inside his home, they found more bloody clothes and rags. The bloody rag would be stuffed inside the fireplace, and there were clothes covered with blood throughout the house. So, who, why do you have blood? On your clothes all throughout the house. Maybe he was a hunter and he was out hunting deer and... In Savannah? Uh, there are trees. I don't know. I didn't mention this, but he walks with a cane, obviously. So it wasn't just a stylish, fashionable accessory? No, no. And so he was in his 60s because Maggie Hunter was in her 30s and he was over 30 years older. And he had one eye. So I don't know how much hunting he was doing. Which or how much murdering he was doing. a little bit of doubt on maybe mm -hmm. he might not have been the guy. Yeah, so we'll see. But At let's, least not acting alone. Let's talk a little bit about the police procedure of the day. It's not at all what we're used to these days. Remember, all kinds of people walk through the crime scene contaminating it, like I told you, and their tactics were really bizarre. Without telling J.C. Hunter or Walls of Maggie's death, remember the other guy, they still have him in custody at the time, they took J.C. to his sister's house after midnight where they escorted him into a dimly lit room and confronted him with her corpse. So he still thinks she's in the hospital and he doesn't know. Their theory was that 
if you were the murderer and you were confronted with the body, you would confess. I assume this didn't pan out like they expected. No. So he's unaware, you know, that his wife has died and they walk him into the room where she's in a coffin. And for an instant, he didn't really understand what was happening. It was understandable. Yeah. And so then he started crying and showed a lot of distress. And they said to him, do you want to kiss your wife? And he said he did. And then he said, when did she die? And they told him and then they took him back to his cell and he didn't say anything else. So that was really like that. They would never do something like that today. I mean, even even if they could do that today, why would they do that today? I don't know what they were thinking. That's just crazy thinking. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, if anything, if he did do it, you would think he would be like a little relieved because now she can't tell anyone. Oh, no. She's gone. Yeah. Remember uh, Walls, the other guy that was uh, arrested? Yes. Okay. Some people say that he was Maggie Hunter's lover because, remember, he paid for her to stay in that home. But it's unknown what the truth of that was. He claimed that he was just a good friend of hers and held her hand when they showed him also the dead body. The next day, Maggie Hunter is laid to rest also at Laurel Grove Cemetery. Police still insist that it's unlikely that a white man committed the murders, even though they are suspecting J.C. Hunter. They're still convinced that it's a black man. And on January 25th, they say they have the real murderer in custody. This man was named Bingham Bryan that we talked about, remember the yard man, who supposedly killed the victims to steal their property. Well, he was subjected to a really bizarre thing. This is crazy. A deputy sheriff brought three wax figures from the department store and three coffins from the undertaker. A man considered faithful and evidently incapable of fright was hired to act as a ghost. Oh, this is insane. This is crazy. The wax figures were taken to the Gribble house and placed in the same positions in which the bodies were found, clothed in similar clothing, and smeared so that they looked as if they had the same wounds that the victims had. The coffins were placed beside the bodies. All the windows were blocked with blankets to make the house as dark as possible. That night, the deputy and jailer took Brian to the house. The deputy used a flashlight to show the face of the first wax figure. Then he shone it in Brian's face. The deputy said, this is the last woman you killed. Brian didn't budge and he showed absolutely no nervousness. I think I'd be nervous anyway, even if I had nothing to do with it. You're showing me wax figures that look like dead people. I'm like, what is going on here? Right. The prisoner had no reaction to either of the figures, so the ghost went to the deputy felt his body and said he wasn't the one who killed Mrs. Gribble, the ghost. They hired a guy to play a ghost and walk through. And This sounds like something that they would reenact in Savannah today. (laughs) So the ghost then went to the jailer again to no effect. Finally, Brian was confronted, but he told them, you can't do anything to me. No one saw me do it and you can't do anything. Eventually, he was declared insane and was no longer considered a suspect. So he's the one that's insane. Y'all are like showing him dead bodies. You know what? He didn't didn't get scared of the deputy. (laughs) Let's make him insane and put him away. But we're not going to try him. No. So with all their unusual tactics, they finally decided on J.C. Hunter and arrested him and put him on trial. And they also arrested William Walls and John Coker. Just as like a backup yeah, even option. Though, yeah, even though they have no like interaction. It's Something's not like a conspiracy. Yeah. In a time of inflation, COVID, monkeypox, and Amber Heard, you need to take a break from it all. 
Welcome to Love and Murder Podcast. With Love and Murder, you get one hour a week to kick back and listen to stories of relationships gone horribly wrong. Stories with true crime, mystery, suspense, and just a little bit of humor that's never at the expense of the victim. Come on, join host Kai and Shar over at www.murderandlove.com. That's love and murder backwards, murderandlove.com. On February 23rd, 1910, a grand jury indicted J.C. Hunter, and on August 17th, Hunter was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. On March 15th, 1911, the conviction and sentence were upheld by the Georgia Supreme Court. Now, at this time, remember John Wilder, the reverend who was at Maggie's bedside? Yes. He had now become J.C. Hunter's spiritual advisor. And under his influence, Hunter fired his attorneys and hired another man to handle his appeal for clemency. Wilder obtained more than 300 signatures on a petition to ask for clemency, claiming Hunter's conviction was based on circumstantial evidence, which I totally agree it is. Like, you have absolutely no proof. Well, they do have the wax figures. (laughs) That was another guy. Yeah, but it probably they could just use the same evidence for everybody. In the meantime, they put John Coker on trial as well, but I told you it was dismissed because of the cocaine witness. How do you have two trials for the same crime? Or like two know. different people because you're not trying them as accomplices, but like you're the guy that did it. Yeah. But you're also the guy that did yeah, it. Yeah, and you, so have, no, yeah, you have no somebody. connection to each other. You don't even know each other probably. We're going to get somebody. Yeah. Bring the wax figures in. A, Let friend, them talk. a friend of the witness, the girl that was the cocaine addict, has said that she had told her the reason she was trying to do it was she wanted the reward money so she could buy two gold teeth and a diamond ring. That would be a great name for an album. <laughs> it would two be. Two gold teeth and a diamond ring. <laughs> that would be a great album cover. So anyway, John Coker was acquitted. And then Hunter's execution, since he was he was convicted. Okay. So they, they convicted one man, even though they've got all these other like trials and I think the acquittals. wax figures honestly spoke for themselves. <laughs> they did. It doesn't matter which guy it was used on. It's just obvious. So Hunter's execution was set for December 22nd, 1911. So that's two years after the murders. That's a pretty long time considering back back then. then, Yeah, they used to like six months. You're out of here. Mm -hmm. So then the case took a bizarre turn. On the day he was supposed to be executed, J.C. Hunter asked to be baptized. The Reverend John Wilder came in and began preparing for the baptism. The reverend, the condemned man, and several witnesses gathered in the jail's hospital ward in front of a bathtub partly filled with water that was going to be used for the baptismal font. At one point, Wilder asked J.C. Hunter if he was guilty. Hunter replied, Before my just God, I stand here to tell you that I know no more about the death of those three innocent women than a babe yet unborn. Before God, I am innocent. So Wilder performed the baptism, then asked, Mr. Hunter, if the governor shall let you die tomorrow, Do you feel satisfied to go before God innocent? Hunter replied, I do, because I'm an innocent man. While he was standing in the water, Wilder proclaimed dramatically, the governor has commuted your sentence. (laughs) Hunter was sent back to prison for life instead of execution. But due to his age, the administrator of the Confederate Veterans Home in Atlanta assigned him to serve out his term there as a waiter. On October 27, 1923, when Hunter was 77 years old, Governor Clifford Walker pardoned him, and he returned to Savannah on November 2nd as a free man. So Mm. he spent how long in jail? To 1923, so not that long. 
Not for but it a is a long time. Murder. If he was he was innocent. Of. Yeah, but if he was innocent, that is a long time. Yeah, if he was innocent. But they really had no proof. So I'm just still under. I just don't know for sure. So why do you think the Reverend worked so passionately for his pardon? Maybe Maggie didn't say it was her husband, and maybe there was a cover up of the real killer. I don't think we'll ever know for sure. Not another one of these. Yeah, because it seems like if she had said his name to the Reverend, why would the Reverend be so adamant to help him? I mean, other than to spiritually counsel him and say, I know you did it. And she told me and, you know, like, why would he be that passionate about helping him? That is confusing. I don't know what it makes sense. Because his quote in the paper was, she said a name, but he didn't say the name. But why would he not? Maybe there was a cover up of someone very influential. We don't know. It could have been someone. It could have been somebody that he was scared to reveal right. the name of because that's he feared what for I his think. own safety. Yeah, that's what I think. So interesting little tidbit. In March of 1917, while J.C. Hunter was still in jail before they released him, a man named J.B. Gaving approached a Savannah policeman who was serving in the National Guard at the Mexico border during the hunt for Pancho Villa. He claimed responsibility for the murder of the women. He said he committed the crime with a partner and described the interior of the house with great detail. He was considered insane and his confession was discounted. Was the great detail correct detail? It didn't say. So if it were a Savannah police officer, then you could see why the Reverend may not have revealed the name. Because he would definitely probably end up having an accidental death. Maybe. And then they just, well, he's insane. We can't put him on trial. And we've already convicted this other guy. So Yeah, I mean, come on. We don't want to have to run a whole wax figure scenario again. That's expensive. So it looks like we'll probably never know the truth. And I'm sure all the evidence has been lost to time. It would be really interesting if they had kept and preserved the evidence and they could use modern forensics, maybe some genetic genealogy. And they could track down whose blood was there because maybe... Maybe they did fight back and cause the guy to leave evidence of who he was. At well, the even scene. fingerprints on the murder weapon because they didn't know fingerprints existed at the time. I guess any amount of forensic evidence. Yeah. Well, I mean, what happened to all this evidence? I did don't it just know. Get thrown they away? probably threw it away at some point because they're like, probably "Well, we've just already handed it out to like visitors yeah. as they come in the <laughs> police department. Here's your souvenir cane. <laughs> it's got a little red stain. Don't pay no attention." So, with all the horror that occurred at this location, of course, it's haunted. The actual Gribble house was demolished in 1941, and by 1944, another building was erected on the site, which would later become the Old Town Trolley Tours, like storage where they park their cars. You may know them if you've been to Savannah as the orange and green vehicles. So we actually went by there yesterday, and it is a warehouse, and they are- sneakily (laughs) crept by it. We looked a little suspicious going to the back. We did. Back in 1974, the Morning News interviewed Elizabeth White Monsies, who grew up in the area of the Gribble House before World War I. She said ghost stories about the house on Elbert Square described where bloodstains would appear mysteriously on the walls. The house continued to be used as a boarding house even after the murders, and different guests reported on these phenomena. Bloody handprints just appearing on the wall. I don't believe I would be a guest for long. No. So, like I said, now it's a warehouse. In 2014, the Ghost Adventures team with Zach Bagans did an investigation, and this was season 11, episode 10 on Amazon Prime. It says otherwise on IMDb, but I actually watched it and it had to go to season 11, episode 10 with Prime. I don't know if it's different on... You had to sneak up on it. Yeah, I had to look really hard for it. So, I actually watched it, and they were investigating the Sorrel Weed House, which we covered in another episode. 
and the former site of the Gribble House. One of the employees they interviewed was an African-American man who said he was always afraid to go to work and would always pray before entering the building. There's an area where the warehouse stands now that used to be slave quarters, and he says that he's been called racial slurs by voices and told to get out. That would be very frightening. Yeah. Another employee told them that during tours, African-Americans are often targeted and one young lady was unable to breathe and had to leave the building. With all the atrocities associated with slavery, that's not surprising that they're being targeted. it's not. So other employees that work there, they all have a ghost story. One person said that there were two trolleys parked side by side in the warehouse and they were standing there talking and all of a sudden this giant black cloud came out from between them like a, it looked like smoke, like a fire. But there wasn't anything on fire. Mm. And did they leave immediately? No, probably not. I would have. I'd be done. We're gone. <laughs> you wouldn't want to go like stick your EMF thing in there? Not if I saw it. <laughs> I wouldn't need my EMF meter at that point. Yeah, but point. somebody might start talking through it. Oh, no. It, that's not how it works. Oh, okay. Maybe a spirit box. That would be a way to do it. But if I see a physical manifestation of something, I don't really want to talk to it. I just want to go. Okay. So there are a lot of other stories, such as a lady in white who walks between the trolleys at night. There's always a lady in white. There were a couple of spot fires that couldn't be explained that happened in the building. Just little areas would just catch on fire. Smoke breaks. They see dark, shadowy apparitions in the office area. A man named Patrick had an unusual experience in the building. Quote, I was in the very back corner when we had a power outage. I was at the switchboard and I thought one of the mechanics was behind me. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to fix this switch. Would you move out of the light? He says he turned around and no one was there. So someone was standing behind him. He could what feel it. What are you it. doing? Yeah, and asked him what he was doing. Leaving, apparently. Many people take photos and they have orbs in them with faces. I in the orbs. That. Yeah. That's interesting in EV- a terrifying kind of way. EVPs include a woman who responds, Hunter, when someone asks, Maggie, are you here? Maggie. And another woman speaks in an English accent like Eliza Gribble would have. Another man named Rousseau has also had some strange experiences in the building. Quote, I was talking with a mechanic after hours one night and I was about ready to close up for the day. We were talking about the day's events near Trolley 31, one of the ghost trolleys, which was parked just inside the former property line of the Gribble House. He leaned up against the trolley and for no reason, the interior and exterior lights and engine fan turned on, even though all the lights and the keys were in the off position. He jumped, I jumped, and as soon as he took his hand off the vehicle, everything cut off. He put his hand on it to see if he could get it to come back on and I did the same, but we couldn't recreate it. I'm still leaving. He just leaves the trolleys. Why not? Apparently they can start and stop themselves. They don't need me. So they actually used to do nightly paranormal tours in this warehouse. And I think we took this tour years ago. We did. We did. But I don't remember too much about it. I remember them giving us equipment and us walking around. Had the lights off and we basically got to just walk around in the warehouse and point. This is before we were real ghost hunters, huh? Uh, Yeah. It's been, this is before we lived here, I think. (laughs) Yeah. We tried to go by there yesterday to see if they still do tours, and they do not. And don't go looking online for their official website, because it will take you to a not-safe-for-work website, which I found out the hard way. Yes, it was that's quite what surprising. Yeah. <laughs> so don't look up Gribble House-related websites. No, you can look up um, the hauntings of it, but don't try to go to their actual website, because it's no longer one. a website for them. Yeah, so hopefully they will some. 
day do tours again, but not today. So some Yelp reviews of people who did get the chance to take their tour. So Brett's going to read some Yelp reviews. Okay, here's a review from J.C. Atchison, and it says, creepy and fun. Two words that I think would aptly describe this place. We had a great time. I was on the fence because I am scared of ghosts, but I am glad we did it. We definitely experienced some paranormal activity all night long. It even messed with my phone and told us its name. We recommend it. And this was from April of 2018. Yeah, I think COVID is probably what shut them down. It would not be a surprise. It devastated the tourism industry, really. Yeah. And this review is from a person whose name I can't read because it's, it's a mostly bunch of numbers, numbers yeah. and letters. But this one says, I'm a believer. I've always been a believer in the paranormal, but my experiences have been limited. This tour was a true paranormal experience. We communicated with multiple entities, and one even lowered the temperature in an area five degrees when we asked. Our guide, Caitlin, was well-informed, experienced, and shared a lot of interesting history. I wish that someone would lower our temperature by five degrees in here. It is hot. It is hot. And this review was from Todd P. out of Atlanta, Georgia. And he says, amazing experience. I don't know if it was because of the full moon or what, but my evening with Willie was nothing short of amazing. Overhead lights going on and off, rim pod activity, and I had this incredible sense of sadness come over me. Great time. Then the proverbial wheels fell off. Gotta hate it when proverbial wheels fall off. That's proverbial. Yeah. The ovulus began displaying words that were directed at me. Come to find out my deceased grandparents were taking the tour with me. (laughs) And so I spent the first 30 minutes communicating with them. That is weird. Towards the end of our time, I ventured to the other end of the building when the ovulus said a number. I replied, that's my birthday. Can you tell me what month? At which point the spirit box said loud and clear, June. It was there that I met Mike. He set off the motion detector a couple of times and then said it was time to go. <laughs> yeah. And indeed it was. Yeah. If the spirit tells you to go, I think I'll just leave. It wouldn't have got that far. He'd have been like, you know what they'd have done? The spirit would be like, walk into this back room. And I'd go in the back <laughs> room. There'd be three wax dummies. And I'd be like, well, it's time for me to take my leave of this city. So, I wonder if that's what we saw when we were walking down Bay Street in Savannah and we looked down under that grate and we saw mannequins standing there. Oh, yeah. I should that put was, that picture up. Yeah, that was We were creepy. just walking around Savannah yesterday and we got and there's these grates that go to a lower level, like yeah. a basement level underground. And we just looked down and just for some random reason, there were dressed mannequins standing down there. That was really freaky. It scared me, but it doesn't take much. So I'm really disappointed that they no longer offer tours, but we'll keep checking back just in case they start up again. And we'll let y'all know if we ever get to go back. Okay, so that's going to bring us to the portion of our episode where I like to take a graphic and insert it here. What What we're we're watching. watching. So this week, we're going to be just a little different. We're not talking about a movie. Yeah. And the reason we're not is because we started watching this not mini series, but like an, an anthology, an, an anthology yeah. series on Netflix. And this anthology is called Slasher. Mm-hmm. 
and season one was released in 2016. I'm really surprised we never heard of it. I am too. Yeah, because we were just looking, looking. It's not actually a comedy. It's not even a dark comedy. It's no, literally it's horror. It's honestly really it's horror mystery. I, I don't know what they classified as, but it's almost more of a whodunit kind of mm-hmm. thing than it is straight horror. Although there is some pretty graphic violence in this TV show. So if you're not a fan of that, you may want to skip this one. But I found this show very interesting because of its premise. As you would expect from the name, there's a killer Mm -hmm. and it is killing people in this city. And it doesn't seem to make sense why. And you're trying to figure out who this killer is because that's sort of the, the setup of the show. You're sitting here and you've got so many Red herrings are being thrown at you. And by the end of each season, each episode, each season is like eight episodes long, I believe. Mm -hmm. They reveal who the killer is and then the resolution as to what happens. And I thought the way they did this was very interesting. And they made it in such a way that even up to the episode where they reveal the actual killer, you, there are still three to four people you think could be that mm-hmm. person. We would pause it and be like, okay, what's your final guess? What's your final guess? And we did guess correctly. We did. We, we narrowed time. it down early on to mm-hmm. two suspects that we thought. Three. Three suspects. But the third one, I, I won't of, say anything else because yeah. I don't want to like give away yeah, what yeah. it is. I will say that it was somebody you would expect but not maybe not necessarily the one that you expect. Mm-hmm. So it they did a good job with it. Mm-hmm. So Crystal, after watching this first season, and we're continuing to watch more, but after this yeah. first season, tell me what is your rating and why? I'll give it a 10. I really, really liked it. I love mysteries and horror. And they did a great job of giving you suspects and reasons why. But then giving you a little bit of doubt of like, well, why would he do that if he's Makes doing no that? Makes sense. Yeah. Or is it a she? And they have all Could these- it be a she? Because you don't know. It easily could be a she. Yeah. Or a he. Yeah. You just don't know. Because you're like, well, it's got to be this guy. But then it's like, well, it could be her. As an episode goes on, it'll like redirect who your thinking is going to yeah. be. So as this went on, you're sort of like, you're doing back this. Back yeah, and we forth. were back you're and like, forth. I have this suspect. But then you're like- Wait, no, this suspect seems way more likely. And then this one seems likely. And then they reveal just enough of each one to where you can doubt it. But then you're like, well, you don't really know who it's going to be. Let us know if you watch it. And if you figure out who the killer is and at what point did you figure it out? I think we had it pretty much wrapped up by the episode of the reveal, maybe the episode before. Yeah. I had a strong suspicion. So what is your rating? My rating is going to be a 9 out of 12 because I thought it was a really good show. There is some stuff in it that, you know, you like everything else, you find implausible. Yeah. And it's more, and honestly, I'm not a humongous fan of extreme graphic violence. Yeah, and this has it. some in it. Yeah. But we watched it in spite of that because I'm not a fan of slasher movies. Like mm-hmm. I don't care anything about Friday the 13th or But in those Nightmare kind of movies, they're just slashing to slash. This one, he has a reason or she has a reason. Yeah. Like there's it's at not least really, a, it, it isn't supernatural at all. No. It's, this is all based in it's like it's a human serial killer yeah. using normal. It's not supernatural. Yeah. It's literally just a person that's going around killing people and you're trying to figure out why. Mm-hmm. So it's semi-realistic. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which makes it more interesting because it feels like it's telling a story rather than just, oh, here's who gets stabbed next. So once you've seen the first season, then you're going to want to, you'll see, hey, I should have been paying more attention to that because like, yeah, they said that early on and like you don't realize all the things they're laying out for you to pick up. Yes, you need to pay attention from yeah, the opening attention. scene of, and we're on to season three yeah, now. Yeah, we we'll talk just about say, season two next week. Yes, just pay attention to everything from Every scene detail. one yeah, on because yeah. they're, they give clues. Yeah, they give a lot of detail. There's a lot of red herrings, but there's also a lot of accurate clues that mm -hmm. if you pay attention, you'll pick up on. But mm -hmm. we'll talk about that on the next time we talk about this. So that will bring us to the portion of our show that we like to call... Layla, Layla and, and Coffee, Coffee Talk. Talk. So what is it that Layla did this week to corrupt poor Coffee? Yeah, so Coffee is a student of her sister. She learns to dog. Yes. And this week, Layla taught her how to whine to get a walk. To get her way. Yes, to get her way. And so Layla's been doing this thing where she'll come up to us at a certain time of the night and she'll just look the most pathetic. Of anything possible. Just melts your heart. It just breaks my heart. Unless you're cold hearted like me. <laughs> I don't believe the hype. And she'll do this little. <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly what she that's does. That's exactly what she does. And so Coffee's been studying this and then she started doing it and she has never, ever whined. She just mostly watches. Yeah. She's never whined before about anything. Like she doesn't whine for food. She doesn't whine anytime. So it was so cute. She just started whining like her sister. And they'd take turns handing off the wine. And it worked. It does work. Because we took those fat lards out for, <laughs> I'm not even going to say the word because they're right outside yeah, the door. I accidentally asked you if you wanted to W-A-L-K the other night to uh, they heard it. to go down to the beach. And they were like on high yes, alert. Yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, they get on high alert. So, you know, picking up bad habits from her sister. What great animals they, they are. They are so great. So if you'd like to find us online, you can go to scarysavannahandbeyond.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms looking for the username at scarysavannah. You can find us on YouTube if you go to youtube.com forward slash scarysavannah and find video episodes of our podcast. We would like to ask everyone that listens to please go to our website, click on the reviews tab and go leave us a five-star review. Stars, and if you do then we will talk about it on our episode. And uh, we would appreciate any time that you could take to do that for us. You can also enter our merchandise giveaway if you click on the giveaways tab on our website and enter a few pieces of information. Then we, on the first episode of the month, we give away the merchandise for the previous month's winner and you can win a coffee mug or a t-shirt and both of which are really cool. We also would like to remind you to please support the podcast by purchasing my lovely co-host a coffee. And you can do this by going to the little yellow icon in the bottom left-hand corner of your web browser and sending her multiple cups of coffee to keep her awake and to support the future endeavors of the Scary Savannah and Beyond podcast. Can't do it without coffee and Red Bull. Exactly. That's a great combination. It is. So that's going to bring us to that one last thing that we like to say. Join us next time in Savannah, where the ghosts and the good times live on. But you know who don't? Who? Them wax figurines, <laughs> I'm guessing. I wonder where they are these days. Two out of three of them ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, they're in the sewer. Go ahead and admit it. You know you did it. We're wax figures. <laughs>